Are you ready? Yep. Let's do it. Hey guys, I'm Amanda. And I'm Jen. And And you're you're listening listening to Fathomless. Hey guys, welcome back to Fathomless. We hope you like our spooky, scary episode yesterday where we know. Last kinda, week. Or, yeah. It's okay. Good job. Well, actually, Sorry, it was guys. about five it minutes ago. It feels like yesterday because we literally just stopped recording it. Yeah. So, <laughs> don't mind me. My brain's in a fog and I'm also slightly stoned. So. <laughs> but we hope you enjoyed our spooky, scary episode last week. And, you know, me and Jen's random stories. We really hope you guys enjoyed that. Yeah, I definitely want to make that like a... Like a thing. Continuing thing. Yeah. So, yeah. Who Send knows? We'll see. Any spooky, scary stories that you have. And we're definitely going to do some more. Definitely. Some yeah. more field trips. Yep. More field trips. And we'll like take you guys along with us, basically. Yeah. I think we should like make that a point to like do some like. What's that place in Middleborough? You said the picture of the little boy ghost and oh, the Oliver House. Yeah, can we yes. go there? Do they yeah, do you tours? Can go there. They do tours. Oh fuck yeah! They do historical tours too, which I'm gonna drag you on because like, yeah. that place has cool ass history. Motherfucking Ben Franklin State. Really? Yes. See, I've been getting into history a lot more, and I then I've history. been beating myself up because I'm like, why the fuck did I not pay attention in? history class in school like i thought it was too cool for fucking like, history i the guess one class that i actually did go in yeah see Shout i was always like Pat. a math like nerd like numbers always like clicked for me so but like there's a little bit of history in the case that i'm going to tell you about today and now i'm like Ooh. why the fuck like i just want to go to the bookstore and just go to the history section and like relearn all the shit that they taught us for free in school <laughs> there's also a lot of shit that they didn't Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's crazy because it's just like I feel like every year we went to the same fucking shit. And yeah. I'm just like, my grandfather had this book that was like, I, I don't remember the exact title of it, but it was basically like everything your history class didn't tell you. And okay. it was wicked fucking. Cool. I love reading and I love like learning new things. And so I definitely think I'm gonna yeah. educate myself Dude, on shit more. I will go down that history road with you. That's yeah. like one of my favorite all about that. I know you are. You are a complete history, like, nerd. And, and you know, like I already said, I you're am. the smartest person I know. You know all these fun fucking facts. So, yeah. So, do you want to just get right into it, I guess? Yeah. So okay. Jen has a crazy missing person case for us. Yeah. Amanda has not heard about this case. I have not. I know nothing. And I'm going I, into this in the dark. I knew nothing about this case before researching it myself. I kind of saw it when I was like looking up like cold cases in Massachusetts and um it also came up on a Facebook page it's like Massachusetts missing people I think the state police run it I yeah yeah I'm part of that group too yeah yeah so they'll they'll post things like anniversaries so the anniversary for this case had just passed so they posted it and I was like oh I was thinking about researching that case I'm, I'm just gonna do it now um, I'm I'm surprised that neither of us have heard about this because at one point this was like the most mysterious like case in Massachusetts. But really cool. it happened in the sixties. You know, a lot more shit has happened since then. It's kind of been swept under the rug a little bit since it's so old. So I just, you know, figure it'll be fun to do something from that time frame. Yeah. And also kind of just like bring this case up again because the anniversary just passed. It's been a long time. And it's still unsolved. It's still unsolved. It's been like 61 years. Yeah. 61 years. Yep. Great. Sad. 
on one of my viewer's real estate apps, uh, some houses in Lincoln, Mass. It's definitely still in the affluential area. Yeah, I had no idea. I was like, I know Lincoln, Mass is a town in Massachusetts, the but I don't know. The house is half a million Okay, so, so it's still very... Like two million. So. Okay, all right. Bougie. Bougie. So they... They lived in the a small home, but it was, I mean, in the 60s, it was a nice home. Yeah. I'll get into... It was a very nice suburban area. Oh, yeah. I'll get 60s. into the neighborhood in the area. So um, there's actually a lot of history in the area that the family lived in. Give it to me. <laughs> so the area where the Rich family lived is quite historic. Nearby Lincoln uh, were the towns of Lexington and Concord. Ooh, the oh. site of a famous battle of the American yeah. Revolution. The first yep. I mean, unless you count like, the, um, the Boston Massacre one. See, I knew you were going to be like all over the shit. Have you ever done the Freedom Trail? No, we should. Oh, oh my god, yeah. We're going to do the Freedom Trail. I will be your personal tour guide. Okay, love it. I love it like that. We'll go like in the spring maybe yep, or will, maybe later this month. show up in full 1776 garb. <laughs> <laughs> I, I bet you have like an outfit like that just hanging around. You're you. <laughs> the face she's giving me, she's like, you, you got me, you got me. <laughs> so during the war, the British were retreating from their unsuccessful raid in Concord back to Boston as part of the Battle of Lexington and Concord. So a very historical area, very uh, historical events happened within a mile of the Rich home. You know, again. That's I, really cool. Yeah, I thought it was really cool to throw in there the town of lincoln was incorporated in 1754 about 20 years prior to the start of the american revolution it was primarily a farming community in the 18th and 19th centuries but became an upscale residential suburb you know by 1961 so on april 19 1775 after marching to concord the british began to take casualties along their return east back to boston uh, colonial militias from surrounding towns fired at the British from behind trees and walls, and the British eventually came to two points in Lincoln where the road took sharp turns. At both points, the Americans caught the British in a deadly crossfire. This area would later be known as the Bloody Angle. The Rich home was only a couple hundred yards from this historical site. Oh, shit. So was that information correct? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because, again, like fabulous. I said, I didn't fucking pay attention to history class. I'm an asshole for doing that. I own that. So this book, I was like, oh, you I know, didn't. This is cool. You so know what I'd love to talk about one day. It's not really true crime, but motherfucking Deborah Sampson. She is. She was actually the first female to fight in any war in okay. America. She was like a real-life Mulan. Um, dressed up as a man, gave herself the name Robert Shirtliff and enlisted to fight with the Minutemen in the Revolutionary War. Badass girl took two fucking muskets. Two, like, literally got shot twice. Got shot in the chest. They obviously found out that she was a woman. She was honorably discharged. And she's on the Plimpton Police, um, she's, like, on the Plimpton Police, like, logo. Wow. Fuck yeah. I did, like, a huge report on her. We can do an episode on her. Yeah, she's, it's super cool. Yeah, I mean, it's not true crime, but it's, like, historical. It's cool history and totally open to that. Yeah. Love her. Okay. I like that. Fun fact. Shout out to Deborah. Thanks, Amanda. So, um, a little bit about Joan herself. Joan Risch was born Joan Carolyn Bard on May 12th, 1930, a Taurus. You go, girl. Love we that. love Tauruses. Um, she was born in Brooklyn, New York. 
She was the only daughter of Harold and Josephine Bard. In early 1940, when Joan was just nine years old, her family had moved to Mountain Lakes, New Jersey. And Joan was always described as like an introverted, studious child. She was very quiet, um, very well behaved. So when the family moved to New Jersey in 1939, 1940, some of my sources were a little bit different. They occupied the second and third floor apartment above a real estate firm that was on the first floor. This same year, Joan tragically lost both her parents in a fire, which was later deemed suspicious. Oh, my gosh. She was not home at the time of the fire because it was, like, a school holiday, and she was visiting President's Day, I think it said it was. Yeah. Um, So, she was visiting her grandmother in Brooklyn, and so she was not home. So, it was Thursday, February 23rd, 1939, on a bitterly cold night. A resident of town was getting off a late night train at about 1.15 a.m. By the time he came by the Bard's neighborhood, he saw smoke pouring from the windows of their apartment, and he immediately alerted all the neighbors on the road, and one family had tried to get into the Bard's apartment, but they couldn't because the intense smoke and heat from the fire. So when the firefighters arrived, the smoke was so thick, they initially couldn't locate Mr. and Mrs. Bard. When they were finally able to extinguish the fire, they found Harold Bard dead on his bedroom floor with a phone receiver in his hands. Oh. Yeah. And Josephine Bard was also found dead, slumped in the chair in the living room. It was said that she had fallen asleep while playing solitaire. I'm guessing oh. the cards were still in front of her. Yeah. So neither were seriously burned in the fire, but they Obviously had both. They had yeah, exactly. Uh. So the family's German Shepherd also no! perished in the fire. I'm yeah, unalive un- myself right now. No, I was like, ah, when I saw oh. that. So according to Josephine's sister, Josephine the mother, um, her sister Alice said that the fire commissioner reported that the fire was started by a penny being put into the fuse box, causing a short circuit in the wires. But according to a report by the fire chief. The fire was started by a defective lamp cord. Oh, okay. So ultimately, so it was some kind of electrical fire. Something but... happened. So ultimately, the investigation was deemed inconclusive, and no legal action was ever taken against anybody for the death of the Bards. Joan was eventually sent to live with her aunt and uncle after her parents' death. Um, her mother's sister Alice, and her husband Frank Natras. They lived in New Rochelle, New York, and after being adopted by her relatives, Joan took their last name. So she was now Joan Natras. Okay. She even got, like, a new social security number, I read, too, which, oh. yeah, so she was, like, a whole different person at that point. In a new life. Yeah. So the Natrasses had four children of their own, three boys and a girl. So four kids plus Joan is five. Joan was the oldest. And Joan looked at the home from... 1939 until 1948 when she went off to college. Joan attended college at Wilson College in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, where she earned a degree in English literature, graduating in 1952 with honors. Yeah. So during her college years, she worked as an assistant literary editor for her class yearbook. She studied diligently, maintained maintained good grades, and she also worked as a part-time waitress. So she was just a college student, just Trying to cover her living expenses. Yeah, just trying to get by. She had a very active social life, playing field hockey, enjoying bicycle trips and nature walks, and participating in student government. 
So after graduation, she went to work for a publishing company and lived with roommates in Manhattan for a couple of years. So just, you know, live in the early 20s lifestyle. So she was able to work her way up from a secretary position to editorial assistant at Harcourt Brayson World and then later the Thomas Y. Crawwell Company. Wow. Yeah. So in 1954, while still working in New York City, she moved back to her home in New Rochelle at the request of her aunt slash adoptive mother, Alice. She was reluctant to do so, which I'll tell you why later, but she was encouraged by those around her to help, you know, to reconcile with her family. All right. Again, we'll get into it. Okay. Um, She lived there for a little more than a year before marrying and moving back to Brooklyn. So, Joan was described by classmates, neighbors, former landlords, basically everyone that knew her, as a thoughtful and quiet woman with loads of personality. She was always well-liked, very happy, lived for her home, husband, and children. Basically, everyone that knew her loved her. One neighbor said, quote, she was one of the most thoughtful persons I've ever known. She was the kind of person who would go out of her way to do things for people. So she was also an avid reader and a port- reportedly wanted to become a teacher when her children got older. So just like a very all around like yeah, wholesome. Like a super sweet woman. Yeah. So unfortunately, there were allegations made that Joan was sexually abused by her uncle slash adoptive father. Oh no. Yeah, Frank Natras. Oh. They were never proven, but Joan did express such abuse to her husband. Frank's son, Peter, and some of her Manhattan roommates, but she never, like, went into extensive detail. Um, Most of the relatives had less than great things to say about Frank. He was described as, quote, an assertive little man that was bossy and dictated everything in his family. Okay, so he was just a dick. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So Joan's husband, Martin, thought Frank was a domineering type who bullied his family. Uh, Peter Natras, Frank's son, said in a 1963 interview that sometime in 1954 or 55, while he and Joan were discussing Frank's disapproval of Martin Risch as Joan's potential husband, like before they got married, um, Joan would tell him stories about his father that, quote, made his hair stand up on end. She never directly came out that his father had molested her, but had implied it by the tone of the conversation in her voice. That's so sad. Mm -hmm. Joan's husband only learned about the abuse a couple years into the marriage when she just blurted it out one day and then just never went into detail and never brought it up again. So, I mean, psychologists say that many people who are sexually abused as children carry the secret for decades and may never reveal what happened to them at all. Yeah, it's, it's very common. And sometimes it's that they kind of, like, blacked it out. Yep. And that's, like, how your brain kind of handles that trauma. Mm-hmm. So sometimes they're not even entirely sure what happened. You just know that something happened to them. Yeah. And, you know, many are silenced by fear and shame. Yeah. And... I can understand how maybe, like, bottling it up, she just kind of blurted it out and just, like, didn't mean to. And then just, like, fuck, like, I shouldn't yeah. have said anything. And just, like, didn't, no, it's yep. fine, it's fine, it's fine. Right back up. Yeah. So Frank denied all these allegations against him. No, obviously. Sure he did. Yeah. So in 1953, Joan met Martin Risch. Uh, a roommate of Joan's introduced them while Joan was living in Manhattan. This roommate was Anne Ellsworth, and she was dating a Harvard Law student. Ooh. 
So in the fall of 1953, Anne was planning to attend a Harvard football game with her boyfriend and invited Joan to come with her, sending her up on a blind date with Martin Risch. Martin was also attending Harvard at the business school. So he was a smart guy. We'll get into him a little bit later, too. Okay. But they instantly clicked. And at 23 years old, Joan knew she had met the man she wanted to marry. So I thought that was so cute. So they dated long distance for about two years while Martin completed his schooling at Harvard. And they eventually married on December 26, 1955 in Long Island. After Christmas, Mm -hmm. how cute. Yep. They first lived together in an apartment in Brooklyn until 1958, and this apartment was also the first home for their daughter, Lillian, who was born in May of 1957. The family moved to Ridgefield, Connecticut in September of 1958 as they were looking for larger living quarters that would still give Martin a reasonable commute to work in New York City. So soon after relocating to Connecticut, they welcomed their son, David, in September of 1959. Um, in 1960, Martin got a new job with the Fitchburg Paper Company. They left Connecticut soon after and moved into a home on Old Bedford Road in Lincoln, Massachusetts. Old Bedford Road was a narrow, winding road, and the south end of it intersects with Route 2A, which runs from Lexington in the east to Concord in the west. Route 2A was surrounded by dense woods, and the opening into Old Bedford Road was narrow and uphill. The road gradually turned northeast, meeting the Hanscom Air Force Base at its southern boundary. Thick woods lined the streets, almost hiding the houses that occupied the road. Each house was set about 50 feet from the road, giving its residents some privacy. Joan left her job and became a stay-at-home mother to their two children, while Martin worked as an executive at the Fitchburg Paper Company. They wanted to live in a nice suburban home that would provide an easy commute to Martin's new job. And they bought their home on April 13, 1961, for $27,500. <laughs> yeah, at the time. Sorry, Amanda's face. Yeah. <laughs> I-, I wish houses were that price. So at the time, this was actually considered a moderately high price for a small Cape-style home, but not for the town of Lincoln. Uh, the unusual thing about the Rich family buying this home was that the federal government had already designated this area for use of the Minuteman National Historical Park back in 1959 to commemorate the Battle of Lexington and Concord. So they already knew that they were going to use this land two years prior to the Rich family buying their home, but are still allowing people to buy homes and live there. Weird. Okay. Yeah. So initially, it didn't affect the family, but come the 1970s, it absolutely would. The park gradually took over this area and removed or relocated many of the homes. So after moving into the home, the Rich family mostly kept to themselves. Um, They hadn't even met some of their close neighbors for months, if not at all. Though Joan had never lived in the area before and wasn't very close with her neighbors, she did have nearby college friends that lived in Bedford and Lexington, Mass., And she frequently spent time with these people. She actually had plans to have one of these friends over the following day after she disappeared. Um, Joan did eventually come to know some of her neighbors with children. And these women in the neighborhood came to a mutual agreement that each would help take turns watching each other's kids whenever they need to run errands or just need some alone time. That's nice. Yeah. So, you know, it wasn't, like, on a personal basis, but they just kind of had a mutual, like, hey, we all have kids, we all need help. Yeah, and it was, yeah, the neighborhood mom squad. 
So one of these neighbors was Barbara Baker, who lived directly across the street from Joan, and she is a key witness in Joan's disappearance. So let's get into the timeline of Joan's disappearance. Okay. So on October 24th, 1961, just six months after moving into this house in Lincoln, 31-year-old 31-year-old Joan Risch was home alone with her two children, four-year-old Lillian and two-year-old David, while Martin was in New York on a business trip. He had gotten up early that morning, around 6.30 a.m., to catch his 8 a.m. flight out of Logan Airport and would be staying in Manhattan overnight. Martin later reports that he was on the road by 6.50 that morning. He said bye to Joan, she wished him luck on his trip, and he left in his 1957 Plymouth. Now, he just lived right outside of Boston, and it was 1961, so leaving your house at 6.50 for an 8 a.m. flight probably wouldn't work today. Oh, my God, no. I don't think the airport security was that tight back then, so his timeline, everything checked out with him. So his plan was to visit a testing lab in Manhattan. This was like a work trip. Uh, stay in a hotel Tuesday night, fly back to Boston early Wednesday morning, and return to Fitchburg for work by Wednesday afternoon. It's unclear what Joan did right after Martin left, but she eventually got the kids up, dressed, and fed them breakfast. So at about 9.20 in the morning, Joan's friend, Sabre Morton, called her. And I think Sabre is like a really cool name, actually. I saw that. I know. I was like, ooh. Uh, This call was brief because Joan had to take her daughter to the dentist and was running late. It was reported later on that the house was clean, the beds were made, the dishes were washed. Like, everything was cleaned up. And this is probably why she might have, like, lost track of time and was running behind. She also had to get the baby ready. And at 9.30, Joan took her son David to Barbara Baker's house so that she could watch David while she took Lillian to the dentist and did some errands. They also did some shopping. And they returned home before lunchtime around 11 a.m. So they were only gone about an hour and a half. The dentist was later questioned by authorities, and he reported there was nothing about Joan's demeanor that indicated anything was wrong. Joan even made a future appointment for herself the following week. Uh, The garbage collector, milkman, and mailman had all been by when Joan was out, and none of them noticed anything out of the ordinary. The milkman this week was a substitute, and after returning from vacation, their regular milkman, um, Bernard Socket, what a name, would come forward about an unfamiliar car he had noticed at the residence on October 19th, just five days earlier. Did you have a milkman growing up? No, I don't think I did. I did. Oh, that's. I know, like the some of the local farms, like yeah. will still like deliver milk it in the glass bottles. A dude in the hood truck. They, he also had popsicles. Oh my god! Yep, that's so cool. I don't think they deliver milk here. I'm in the middle of nowhere. Oh no, they would just like give you a cow. They might. Yeah, <laughs> and maybe we could get cows. I don't know. I think my yard's just a little too small. So, anyway, this car was a General Motors model described as being dirty and two-toned, one of these colors being blue. Just remember that. So, when Joan gets home, she picks up David from the neighbors and chats with Barbara for a little bit. Barbara stated that Joan was in, quote, extremely good spirits that afternoon. It's assumed that she returned home, put away her shopping items, and changed her outfit into something more casual. I put on my sweats and I get home, too. So a short time after, around 11.15, a delivery driver from a local cleaner came by and the dry cleaners. Um, and he came by for his regular visit to the house to pick up several of Martin's suits. He was inside the home for about five minutes and later reported to the authorities that he didn't notice anything strange. 
Joan made lunch for the kids and put David down for a nap around 12 noon. And this was typical for Joan's routine. And according to Martin, um, David took a nap for at least two hours. So always slept every day from 12 to 2. <clears throat> so at 1.20, the neighbor, Barbara, she watched from her, su- her house as her son, Douglas, walked over to the Rich home to play with Lillian. At 1.55, about 35 minutes later, without speaking to Barbara, Joan walked Douglas and Lillian across the street and dropped them off at Barbara's house. She apparently told Lillian that she would be back. And, you know, the children as four-year-olds, they probably thought nothing of this. They just continued to play where Joan had left them. But she dropped them off and didn't say anything like, hey, the kids are in your yard now, Barbara. She dropped them off and went back to her house. At this point, the children no longer had a clear view of the rich home. So when gently asked about this, Lillian did not recall any cars in the driveway besides her mother's when Joan was leading her children across the street to the Barker yard. So this is the point where the story and and the details become a little unclear. Okay. It's also unclear as to why Joan brought the children back to the Barkers in the first place. Yeah. Was it, yeah. Was it because David was about to get up from his nap and and he needed tending to, was she going to call her friend back? We don't know. Was she planning on having somebody stop by? Her friends and relatives thought the idea of her meeting a secret lover was very out of character for her. And her son was supposed to be waking up from his nap shortly. And Lillian or her neighbor Barbara could have returned at any point. And it was middle of afternoon. So if she had a secret lover, why wouldn't she have them just come over at night? You know, if her husband's away, just have him come over at night if that's what you want to do. Yeah. Uh, this this is most likely not the situation. She, well, I'm sure it's something that was speculated. Yeah. She may have wanted some time to herself. And I think, like, with the timeline of her son getting up, maybe she needed to yeah. tend to the baby. Like five yeah. Um, you know, I, I know I love me some me time. Oh, yeah. So, but why didn't she tell Barbara that she brought the kids back over? That was, like, my question. So Barbara did say that she saw Joan at about 2.15, quote, moving quickly up her driveway from the house, like from the garage, like out to the street, kind of um, wearing a trench coat with something red in her hands um, and like with her arms stretched out in front of her. So either like she was chasing something or she was holding something away from her body that was red. Yeah. So. Apparently, Joan walked to her car and then walked back to the direction of her garage, appearing dazed and was walking quickly. So Barbara later reports to the police, quote, I saw her run beside her car. I saw something red. I thought she was chasing a child that was wearing a red jacket. She was running with her arms outstretched. So she did not see Joan leave her property and didn't get the feeling that anything was out of sorts with Joan. Um, but during her later retelling of the sighting, she says, quote, it seems to me that when she ran to her car and then she ran back to her house again, saw something red, it was about 2.15. So, I mean, still kind of saying, like, the same thing, but, like, I guess, like, a couple reports said that, you know, just a couple things, like, varied. Yeah. So, but I don't also remember every single detail of everything that I see either. Yeah. I could have been one of those things where she just pulled up, but no, I was like, I was weird, and just, like, went back to doing whatever she was doing. So, like... Yeah, exactly. And like nobody knew anything was wrong at this point. So, but this would be the last confirmed sighting of Joan. 
So Barbara was later re-interviewed in March of 1962, and this interview was a little bit more revealing. So after helping her son put training wheels on his bike from about 2.05 to 2.10, Barbara was in the kitchen with the children. They had come inside at that point. She heard a sound coming from outside saying that it was Mrs. Rish shouting or scolding at somebody. She could hear Joan, but she couldn't make out any words. So she looked out her kitchen window. She could see Joan's face and upper half. It looked like had Joan. It looked like Joan had run the length of her car toward the road, stopped, and then seemed to turn around and go back to the house, kind of as if she was chasing like a child, like "Hey, like don't run to the road." Yeah. Um. This is what Barbara initially thought. Um. It could be that she got David up, dressed, and put him in something red, and that he had tried to run into the street when Joan took him outside. The one problem with this theory is that David was found crying and wet in his crib around 4.30, still in his sleeping clothes, which were not red. It is thought that he'd been left in his crib since he was put down at noon. It was initially, yeah, it was initially theorized that there could have been an intruder and that Joan was trying to scare them and confronted them in the driveway. Um, but again, it's the middle of the afternoon. He tries to break in a house. During this day, this time of day, with yeah. high traffic like on the road, like the Hanscom Air, Fair, Air Force Base, sorry, tripping, um, is at the end of this road. And a lot of people travel there to work every day using Old Bedford Road. So, you know, but if neither of these theories are true, what was Joan doing in her driveway? So based on Barbara's statement, Joan could have been doing something totally ordinary, but now, like, we can kind of see it might seem a little sinister depending, I mean, according to like all this information that we know now. Yeah. Um, like knowing that she did, went missing right after this. So at three twenty-five, so we're about a little over an hour after Joan was seen in her driveway by the neighbor, a 13 year old Virginia Keene gets off the school bus and she notices an unfamiliar car in the Rich's driveway described as a dirty grayish blue or gray car maybe a 1954 plymouth and she thought it had mass registration plates on it but couldn't couldn't be sure um but she was sure that it didn't belong to anyone in the rich family and i'm thinking you know maybe is this the same car that the milkman saw so not long after this a neighbor from a nearby road was driving south towards route 2a and stopped her car on old bedford road to let an old blue car that was backing out of the rich driveway out so she stopped, this car backed out, but the car ended up driving in the other direction, driving north towards, like, the Air Force Base and not south towards Route 2A, that busy road. Uh, she didn't notice anything suspicious about the car and didn't take notes of its occupants. And can't blame her. I don't take in the detail of every car I let by on the road either. So at 3.30, Barbara walks Lillian back home and takes her kids out on an errand run. At this time... Barbara has no idea that Joan is not in her home since her blue Chevy was still parked in the driveway. She drops the Leland off at, in the front of the yard at the rich home without stopping to tell Joan. So I guess this was a common thing. You just drop your four-year-olds off without telling the parent, hey, your kid's back. Was, was Lillian four or was it the child that was four? The, the, baby. the baby is two. Okay, all right. Sorry. Lillian is four and Douglas is Barbara's four-year-old son that okay. is playing with Lillian. Um, so, yeah, so she drops the Lillian off in the front yard, doesn't tell Joan, 
She returns home at like 4.15. So 45 minutes have gone by. Lillian is back at her house saying, quote, mommy is gone and the kitchen is covered in red paint. Um, the book I read said that she stated out, like, she didn't say the red paint thing. Like, exactly. This just kind of blew up and, like, you know, it was the one thing that the case was kind of, like, known for it was red paint. But she said that the house was her was a mess, her brother was wet in the crib crying, and that her mom was not in the house. Um, but all the news articles just hang on the red paint line. So yeah. who knows? Uh, Lillian was in the home for a little bit before going back to her neighbor's house because um, Barbara did go out and do some errands. So Lillian quickly discovered that her mother was not in the home, even though her little brother was upstairs crying in the crib. After calling out for her mother with no avail, she went upstairs to check on her brother and it said that she spent about 30 minutes in, in the bedroom that she shared with her baby brother. She might have just been, like, playing with dolls or toys, not being able to fully grasp the potential danger around her. Yeah. Somebody could have been in the house. You know what I mean? But it also showed that she had trust in her environment and felt secure in her house. So once she saw that the neighbor was back, that's when she sought help. Um, when Barbara went over to the rich home, she quickly realized the red paint on the floor was actually blood. After searching the home, she quickly grabbed the baby and brought the Rish children back to her house. She called another neighbor who met Barbara in front of the Rish home, and the two of them together searched the house for Joan, looking in the basement, around the edge of the property, basically everywhere they could. Um, after their own thorough search, they called the police at 4.33 p.m. So Sergeant Mike Hugh from the Lincoln Police Department responded to Barbara's call that she was afraid that something had happened to her neighbor. He was the first to arrive on the scene at about 4.40 p.m., and the police found the kitchen in complete disarray. The walls and the floor of the kitchen were coated with blood smears. The blood he observed on the walls and the floor of the kitchen was later confirmed to be type O blood. It looked as though someone had tried to clean up some of the blood, but quickly gave up. It like someone had like taken like paper yeah. towels and like cleaned it up, but the kitchen was still a fucking hot mess. No. Type O was that? Do they know what type? Like, it was, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Joan did have type O blood. Okay. Yep. So police found paper towels and a pair of David o David's overalls soaked with blood, but a large amount was still on the floors and the walls. Um, McHugh's first thought was maybe she had committed suicide, but when he did not find Joan's body anywhere, he quickly ruled this out. This is when he called for backup, and soon the entire Lincoln police force was at the Rich home. And at the time, the entire Lincoln police force was only nine people. I was going to say, was it like four dudes? It was nine people. I read later in the book it was like nine people. Like, four of them were part-time. <clears throat> so, all, all nine of them showed up. So, uh, he had some of his officers call local hospitals to see if anyone matching Joan's description had checked themselves in. But, unfortunately, that came up with nothing. Um, there were more blood drops upstairs in the master bedroom. The telephone pole, telephone pole, we're inside a kitchen. There's... This is what happens when you're like reading and reading and reading and all your words just kind of form into mush. Fabulous. Thank you. I know. So the telephone had been taken off the kitchen wall where it was mounted and was found in the trash can, which was dragged from its usual spot under the sink and stood in the middle of the kitchen floor. The trash was filled with garbage, a liquor bottle, several empty beer bottles, 
And Martin later explained that the liver bottle was finished off by the two of them the night prior, but he couldn't explain why the beer bottles were there. Uh, there was a phone book open to the emergency numbers page. The kitchen table was over- overturned and the chairs were strewn across the room. To McHugh, this indicated there was some sort of struggle and that Joan was likely abducted from her home. A, a trail of blood led from the kitchen to baby David's room. Oh my god. Yep. Up to the crib. Although David was crying when authorities arrived, he was unharmed, which is good. That's good. Yeah. There was another trail of blood leading from the kitchen to Joan's car that was still parked in the driveway. And, you know, we, you kind of already asked this question, but although DNA testing was not available during this time, it was confirmed that Joan did have type O blood. It was never proven if this blood found was her blood. Because I mean, type O is fairly rare, so I would assume that. Yeah. yeah. There were also several fingerprints and handprints in the blood found in the kitchen. Because Joan's fingerprints were not in file, they couldn't verify if they were hers or not. Uh, Authorities later collected fingerprint samples from thousands of people, but no matches ever came about. And they were testing samples, like, I know into the 90s at least. I don't know if they did after, but I know, like, for years after the disappearance, they were still testing. Yeah. So... Nothing was stolen from the home, and Joan's purse was still inside the house untouched. The Massachusetts State Police were called in very quickly to assist, and they used the help of their bloodhound, Sadie. Aww, and yeah, I knew you would love, love a dog. Yeah, we love a dog. Um, Sadie came in to help with search. Unfortunately, she did not lead police on an extensive search. Um, she walked back and forth over to the Barker's house, where it makes sense. Joan had been there a few times that day, but otherwise she was unsuccessful in picking up Joan's trail. So it took six hours to get into contact with Joan's husband, Martin. He was finally notified at 11 p.m. just as he was about to go to bed. No, was that just because he was like out on a business trip? Well, yeah, I'll kind of explain. So there was some confusion about what hotel he was staying at because he normally stayed at one that was fully booked that night. Oh, Yeah. So, and there was also confusion about whether he was supposed to come back that night or the following day. Like, the neighbors, like, weren't sure. So, I think someone told police, I think he's coming back. Yeah. They heard heard another thing from another person. But but the second he got the news, he immediately checked out of his hotel, caught a taxi to the airport, and flew back to Boston, arriving at 1.15 in the morning, like, technically the following day. So... Within two hours, less than two hours, he's back in Boston. The state escorted him from Logan Airport to the state police's Concord barracks where he was questioned. So they picked him up from the airport. 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 <laughs> Told you guys. The airport. The airport. It's not long. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Cool. So picked him up from the airport, brought him straight to the police police. Here I go again. I'm just going to end that sentence. I'm not even going to try to reiterate that. They took him to the police station. They took him to police. Yeah. So um, there were some reported sightings of Joan around the timeline of her disappearance. Okay. Which were very confusing. Um, Apparently, these sightings were of a woman who looked like Joan. And like I said, they were like before and around like this timeline. So at 2.45, someone reports a woman resembling Joan walking west on Route 2A 
just 300 yards from her home. This woman appeared to be, quote, walking aimlessly and just shuffling along. She was hunched over as if she were cold, and she was wearing a gray coat that came to her knees and a light-colored handkerchief around her head. The witness said she looked to be about 30 years old, and she seemed to be kind of, like, untidy, I guess. A gray coat was later found to be missing from Joan's closet. Okay. So, at about 3.15, 3.30, someone reports a woman resembling Joan walking north in the median strip of Route 182 near the Winter Street exit about five to six miles away way from the rich home like southeast from the rich home this woman seemed dazed and walking with her head down she was reportedly seen holding her stomach and seen to have blood running down her legs she was she was also seen wearing a gray jacket and a light colored handkerchief around her head just like the woman seen on route 2a this is like not long after but but listen this was only half hour 45 minutes or so after the first sighting um five six miles away yeah it takes it takes about an hour to walk like three or so miles so it would have taken her like two, two hours. hours yeah 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 it takes about 20 minutes to walk a mile and at like a moderate like pace hustling compared to what they said no walking dazed and confused so not really in any specific like direction or destination so that means that she would have turned around and changed direction pretty much so she was walking west and now she's seen supposedly seen southeast so she would have walked west turn around gone that just doesn't make sense really um, this is about the same time that Virginia Keene, the young neighbor getting off the bus, sees the mysterious car at the end of the bridge driveway. Then, not long after, is when the other neighbor from down the street lets this car back out of the bridge driveway in front of her. This is also around the same time when Barbara Baker is... Barbara Baker. Barbara Barker is bringing Lillian home. So all this is happening like at the same time. If she was supposedly spotted earlier like why was this car leaving rich home at 3 30 if there was a sighting of her at 245 yeah Yeah, everything about this case is very ran away from her home yep very weird can i just i made a mistake i said that um the second sighting was on route 182 um no it was route 128 (laughs) i'm mixing up the numbers that's okay Everyone yeah, has a I feel moment. like when we record on like a Sunday night after doing stuff all day, I'm like blah 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 blah. blah, blah, blah. So at 4:25, another report comes in uh, about a woman that looked like Joan walking on the south. Sorry, she was walking south on the west side of Route 28. So the first sighting said she was walking on the median strip going north, and now she's a apparently seen walking south on the west side of the highway so that means the first time she would have had to cross two lanes of an extremely busy highway to get to the median strip going in one direction and now she's seen walking south the other direction on the west side of the highway so she would have had to cross the road again so it's like how many times is she switching direction like if you look at a map of it it's more like clear but yeah. These 
it's just she would have had to switch direction all sorts of times if the, all these sightings were a drone. She was also described as wearing a gray color coat well, with a white handkerchief tucked under her chin, like around her head and her chin. Uh, she, too, had what appeared to be blood or mud coming down her legs. Her head was down and her hands were in her pockets. So even in 1961, both like Routes 2A and 120 were very busy, like very high traffic roads. And these aren't any roads that any pedestrian should be walking on. No. Yeah. So by this time, the 425 sighting, a few minutes after, um, this is when Barbara and her fellow neighbor had already looked through, her house through the house and, and were calling the police. the police. Yeah. So I just wanted to compare these sightings with what's happening back in the actual timeline. Yeah, exactly. So let's go into some of the evidence. Um I know we kind of talked about the kitchen, but there, I just kind of wanted to go like a little bit further into everything. So obviously the most disturbing evidence of the scene were the bloodstains in the kitchen. Police described them as, quote, smears and streaks. Like, again, someone had attempted to clean it up. Exactly. Um, blood was smeared all over the kitchen floor, but most of it was along the walls, like in the corner of the kitchen where the phone had been ripped from the wall. It was like on the baseboards and stuff. Um, again, it looked like someone had cleaned it up and then stopped mid-effort. So this made the police believe that there was some sort of attack or medical emergency. Yeah. More blood was observed in the door frame leading from the kitchen to the living room, um, on the baseboards, and on the wall mounting for the phone. The blood on the floor was dry, except for a few spots that had pooled and weren't entirely dry yet. Uh, the total amount of blood at the scene was approximately half a pint. So people thought it was much more when they were looking at it, but it, it actually was wasn't. Around. Yeah. So a human blood has a human blood. A human blood. Yeah. <laughs> shut up. A human has about 10 pints of blood in their body and you can quote, you know, safely use about, lose about a pint and a half. Yeah. That's like what you donate. But any amount of blood loss can cause someone to become dizzy and lightheaded. Oh, no, absolutely. I fainted after giving blood before. I fainted after cutting my hand on um, a glass cup, and I was looking at my hand waiting for it to start bleeding. And wouldn't you know the tiniest little bloop? And I fainted. And your sister Lindsay was there with me that day, actually. I that story. Yep. So I scared the living shit out of her. Yeah, you did. Yeah. Sorry, Lindsay. Love you. <laughs> Yeah, it was the first time I fainted, so I didn't even know what the fuck I was doing. So, um, authorities believe that the victim only suffered a superficial wound, and this would not have caused death. Yeah, obviously a pint and a half is an amount. Yeah. Isn't an amount to, to kill you, but obviously something fairly serious mm -hmm. might have happened. She probably like cut herself like, pretty bad. Or... Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's like theories we'll talk about, about what could have possibly happened. Um, there's another one that I feel like, I don't know what I'm leaning towards. I'm just going to go on. So a pair of children's overalls and children's underwear were found in the kitchen with blood on them as well. I don't know if they were used to like try and clean up the mess, but they were there with blood on them. A table that was normally under the wall mounted phone had been knocked on its side and lay in the doorway that led into the living room that was just outside the kitchen. Uh, an apron was also found on the floor nearby. And again, the phone book was open to the page for emergency numbers. A plastic wastebasket was in the middle of the kitchen floor, which was filled with, you know, again, the empty whiskey bottle, five empty beer bottles, um, some trash, and a broken plastic coat hanger. 
the kitchen was the only room that was in disarray. Um, but there were, however, a few more bloodstains throughout the home that I kind of briefly mentioned before. Yeah. So eight small bloodstains were discovered in the master bedroom. Uh, two small bloodstains were on the floor in the hall at the top of the stairs. And another one the same size was on the first step on the bottom of the stairs. Uh, one more drop was found in the middle of the children's bedroom. A trail of blood led from the kitchen floor about 20 feet down the driveway to a spot where Joan had parked her car. Two small stains were close to the side entrance of the house, and one very small stain was on the cement landing on the side entrance. Joan's 1951 Chevy sedan had four separate blood stains on it, um, on the front and the rear ends of the car. One stain was on the center of the trunk lid. Two stains were on the top portion of the right rear fender, and the last was on the left side of the forward portion of the hood. What they found to be strange was there was a coat hanger that sat on top of the car. Nothing inside the car was disturbed, and there was no other evidence of blood found further than Joan's car. Fingerprints were collected and compared to members of the Rich family. The thumbprint on the detached phone receiver and speaker and um, a partial palm print and fingerprint on the wall in the hallway did not, did not come from anyone in the family. Um, and to date, after being compared to fingerprints in the system, police have still found no match. So I don't... I, I think someone was in the house with her. I don't think she like cut herself it was like oh shit and left like as if they were like yeah. bloody fingerprints that weren't anyone in their family yeah that's a little suspicious yeah so state police chemist frank bianco did an in-depth investigation of the blood and trace evidence found in the rich home and he concluded that the blood was from a superficial injury and he believed that the blood had come from the head region maybe from a nosebleed um, again, this blood was found to be type O, the same as Jones, and again, the total amount of blood at the scene was less than a half pint, even though looking at the scene, it seemed like much more. After investigating the scene further and speaking with Jones' husband, it was found that one of Jones' coats was missing from the home, as we already said. Yeah. Um, this coat was a gray coat, just like the one that the woman that was seen was wearing in those supposed sightings. Police also found some books that they thought were intriguing. These books were recently checked out from the local library by Joan, and many of these books were about women who were murdered or who had disappeared. One of these books described similar circumstances to Joan's case. This book was called Into Thin Air, and the woman in the book planned her own disappearance and left blood splatter behind to confuse police. That's wicked weird. Yeah. It is uncertain whether these books had anything to do with Joan going missing or if it's just a coincidence. The husband did report that Joan had enjoyed reading books like this. And so do I. I have weird books in my house, too. So, like, don't come at me. I have a whole book about poison. If you saw my... Oh, yeah, I remember you telling me about that. If you saw, like, my Google search history on my laptop, researching cases... People would be like, what the fuck is this girl doing? Yeah. In context, it looks weird but i think what joan and she was an avid reader she loved reading she had a degree in like literature yeah so So i don't find it that weird i enjoy true crime novels so police started their search in the old bedford road neighborhood with the help of sadie the state police bloodhound they 
expanded their search into the woodlands surrounding the house, covering about 15 square miles of land. Many people showed up to assist in the search, including 20 state troopers, 20 state conservation officers, 60 air policemen from the Hanscom Air Force Base, and members of the Lincoln Police Department. Also, all nine of them. All nine of them. <laughs> um, two helicopters and several volunteers. Despite their efforts, there was no trace of Joan. One of these helicopters was the corporate helicopter of the Fitchburg Paper Company. Oh, wow. Yeah, where Martin worked. And they helped on short notice and helped with the search of one of their executives' wives. He was very high up in the company, so they were like, we have to help him. That's really nice of them. Yeah, so searches in this area continued for at least a week. Police and police dogs went back into the woods and kept coming up empty-handed. The search extended into other woods in the Lincoln area, close to Highway 128, several ponds, and the Cambridge Reservoir, where Joan was reportedly seen by. District Attorney John Droney took these sightings seriously, and he had divers search the reservoir on three separate occasions, and they, too, came up with nothing. Um, missing persons posters were distributed all around, and her dental charts were sent to police departments all over the U.S. So Joan did go to the dentist that day. She was found to have several cavities at the time of her disappearance. So if she were to seek out dental treatment, police had hoped a dentist would recognize her. Alerts were sent to libraries, book publishers, and restaurants where Joan might seek employment if she were still alive. Um, one newspaper called the Boston Record America offered a $5,000 reward for discovery of Joan, dead or alive. In today's dollars, that would be about $43,000. Oh, shit. Yeah, so a hefty reward. Yeah. Nobody ever came forward with any information, and this money was never paid out. Police canvassed multiple hospitals, mental institutions, and other sites in hopes of finding Joan, and within a month, police had received several phone calls and letters from people claiming that they had seen Joan and provided their own theories on what could have happened to her. So many people following the news of Joan's disappearance were very unsettled by the case. Like, I'm, I am too. <laughs> Who wouldn't be? How could a young, happy mother of two vanish or be taken violently from her home in the middle of this upscale neighborhood in the middle of the day with neighbors all around? Yeah, especially in, like, that was, you know, the era where you didn't lock your doors at night. Oh, so, yeah. People, like, would make fun of you if you locked your doors. Lincoln was supposed to be a place to escape the violent crime. Yes, crime still exists everywhere, but it was significantly lower in this area compared to the bigger cities in Massachusetts. Boston, Springfield, Lowell, New Bedford, just to name a couple. So, you know, in the 1960s, America was going through some international debacle, um, and these kind of stem from the Cold War with the USSR. In the U.S., the economy was trying to cover from a reef recession. Uh, Massachusetts State Police had their own scandal happening within their own police force in relation to a, quote, bookie joint gambling raid, which led to their commissioner of public safety getting indicted on corruption and perjury charges. So, like, you know, the 60s, like, wasn't, I'm just trying to say that it wasn't like the best fucking time. I don't think there's any really good time like where we are now, but you know, the state police was corrupted. You know, we were kind of at war and you know, there was just a lot of baggage. Yeah, exactly. So the biggest crime story before Jones's appearance in the area involved two escapees from Middlesex County jail in Cambridge, mass on May 15th, 1961. 
Two inmates smuggled a gun into the jail, held three guards hostage, and shot and killed the master of the jail. They escaped, and they both ended up stealing cars to get away. One of these escapees made his way to Lincoln, abandoned the car, and burglarized the home in the south end of town. During this year, uh, Lincoln and the area of Old Bedford Road had many reports of burglaries and trespasses. So, I mean, things weren't really living up to the TV picture perfect image. Yeah, people are like the suburbs. There's no crime. Move here. Not, not really. Sit on a throne of lies. Yep. So, um, multiple correctional facilities and mental institutions were within a 10-mile radius from the Rich home. And I'm saying mental institutions because that's what they were back then. Yeah. So, and I wouldn't call them that today. But yeah. that's what they were referred to as back then. Sanitarium. Well, they did some fucked up things. So. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it could be totally possible that an escapee could have had something to do with Joan's appearance. Disappearance. You never know. With all these you know, places around. So obviously investigators first look into Martin Rich. Everyone looks into the husband first. He didn't necessarily have to be in the home to have anything to do with the crime. He very well could have had arranged to have someone commit a physical assault while he was conveniently away on business. But please feel that Martin didn't really quote fit the mold of a husband who wanted to kill his wife. And they say he was really stunned when he heard of his wife's disappearance and was kind of in a state of quote, you know, semi shock. Uh, Martin grew up in a middle-class neighborhood in New York. He graduated sixth in his high school class of 300, attended college, joined the U.S. Air Force, earned his MBA from Harvard, and was working up the corporate ladder in the paper industry. By the time he was 30, he had a good job with a great salary, a family, a nice home in an upscale town. You know, he was pretty well off. Um, there was also no life insurance policy for Joan, so there was no financial like incentive to off yeah. his wife. Yeah, they couldn't really find like a, a motive, <clears throat> it seems. He never impeded the investigation. He complied with police for any requests. And he made efforts to push the case forward when he felt like, you know, things were starting to slow down and fall off. Obviously, his fingerprints were in the home, but they didn't match any of the bloody fingerprints left behind. Martin also sent two letters um, to... Uh, the newly elected governor and the FBI director get more police resources to help find his missing wife. Yeah, so clearly he was upset that she was gone and wanted to get some answers. Yeah, mm-hmm. he also passed two polygraph tests and his forensic tests came back negative on October 25th for blood on his hands. Yeah, so... Yeah. Um, there are also no signs of any secret lovers on either side and no evidence of any marital problems. State police even secretly accompanied Martin on some of his work trips without his knowledge, like after Jones' appearance. Yep. They never saw any signs of him having, having an affair. Um, the Rich family had traveled back to their old neighborhood in Connecticut during the summer of 1961 to visit with their old friends and neighborhood. Neighborhood. Old friends and neighbors. Friends stated that Joan and Martin were happy, still acting like newlyweds. It was the happiest period in their married life, and Joan told her friends that they liked Lincoln and they were enjoying fixing up the house and working in the yard. Yeah. So Martin ended up raising both children with the help of relatives and a housekeeper. He never remarried, and he never had Joan declared dead. He refused to let that happen. He never changed his phone number in case Joan ever called. And he lived in the same house until 1975, 
when the National Park Service eventually purchased the home and several other properties to develop the National Park. Martin passed away in 2009 after a long illness, and he never gave up hope for finding his missing wife. Oh and I just got goosebumps. Yeah, we love you. Martin initially, sorry, not Martin. <laughs> it's late, guys. This whole episode is like. <laughs> um, please initially compile the detailed biography of Joan and her family, taking a close look at her routines, habits, personality traits. They looked into the rich's finances and continued to search places where she could be found. Possible perpetrators were interrogated, including sex offenders, people who regularly traveled Old Bedford Road, and handsome employees. Police also investigated leads about the mystery car seen in the rich driveway that day. The blood from the kitchen was tested and showed that, again, it was type O and it was human blood. They could not tell if it was bleeding from a violent act or from an accidental hemorrhage. Police questioned hundreds of people, um, friends and relatives of Joan, Hanscom employees, hundreds of sex offenders again, um, hundreds of delivery men, salespeople. So people were interviewed, people were questioned all over. They went like hands on deck for this. Yeah, it seems like it. It was fucking insane. So media outlets throughout the country covered this case very closely in October and November of 1961. It was on the front page in the news like every day for two weeks in one New England newspaper. I don't know which one it was, but to have front page coverage for two straight weeks yeah, is a lot. Intense. Yeah. So news articles still popped up um, in some newspapers like into the 1990s. People were obsessed with this case, and they thought it was an even greater mystery than the Boston Strangler murders. Wow. Yeah, and that still is, quote-unquote, unsolved. <laughs> it's all, it's all. We'll do that one, too. So, neighbors in the community reported burglaries, unwanted house guests, and even a peeping Tom in the neighborhood. So, I mean, there's things happening in this area, so I think very well someone could have just, like, approached, attacked, who knows. Within a year of her disappearance, more than a thousand investigators had participated in the case. Um, and investigators analyzed more than 10,000 fingerprints in connection with the case. It's still well known, but it's becoming largely forgotten as the years go on. All right, so now that we kind of have all the facts of the case, I'm going to get into um, some of the bigger theories that are out there. Um, so, we'll start with the first one. Did Joan Rich voluntarily leave on her own account and abandon her family? That's, like, a big one. Um, and I just don't think, given the circumstances of her disappearance, like, how could you just start a new life? Yeah, it seemed like she really, like, enjoyed her life and loved being a mom and all of that. But, I but mean, also, like, we don't, we never know, we like, never know how people are really feeling. She did leave her career and a very successful career and became a stay-at-home mom and you know we're not mothers so i don't know how it feels but like i know some things aren't always what they seem on the outside also her youngest child was two, two so she could have been dealing with like postpartum depression and yeah. like other things and i know that that was like you know mental health was not as accepted oh no back then not at all as it is now so no. it could have been yeah you, you never know she she did leave her home that day. She left behind a purse, her car, her car keys, her driver's license, and her asthma medication. I guess she did have, like, some mild asthma. 
Um, but you know, if you need it and you don't have it, it can be serious. Um, police had gone through the family's finances with like a fine tooth comb, like down to the penny apparently. And there was no evidence that she had like stashed away any money to fund a new life. Okay. Um, the crime scene didn't appear to be staged, but the book that she had read before suggested that maybe it could have been. It was noted that Joan had borrowed 24 books from a library about disappearances. Wow. But, I again, if I had a library yeah. card, I'd do the same thing. Yeah, maybe it was just something that she found really fascinating. I mean, I do. I, I'm i fucking doing a whole ass podcast on this shit. Like, exactly. we love this shit. So, you know, it's also difficult to remain on the radar for 61 years. Yeah. Very difficult. The theory, Especially where they sent, like, her dental records out and everything. Like, and she had cavities. Yeah. yeah. You gotta get that addressed. So, the theory of her having a secret lover is also debunked. Like, her family was her life. Um, she would not fake a crime scene and leave her children and husband without ever speaking to them again. Like, I don't have kids, but, like, I couldn't even leave my fucking cats to start a new life. Like, yeah, no, I no, I cannot even imagine my life without my girls so another theory and this is a big one and this is one that like kind of makes sense to me um is that she was pregnant and arranged to have an abortion in her home um remember it's 1961 abortion is illegal and one illegal abortion in 1926 led to the trial of a Boston doctor who performed the procedure on a 20-year-old girl who had died from the complications Shit. of the operation. But when she died, he felt like he needed to cover it up. So he cut her body into eight pieces and packed her body parts into two boxes. Oh, damn. He left these boxes in the new Calvary Cemetery in Boston. The girl's fiancé led police to this doctor, and he was arrested and sentenced to seven years in prison. That's it. Seven, yep. seven years. Not only did he perform, like, an illegal procedure, which, I mean, I feel like abortions in the 1920s weren't as medically safe, safe as they are today. Well, and no medical practice was safe then, too. They just, like, chloroformed Exactly. Sure. Not chloroform, but, you know, like put her under and or just like an infection like, from yeah, dirty scaffolds septic, you know. yep but like the fact that you tried to cover it up and you murder and you didn't murder her but you dismembered her well, i mean you can't did murder her i guess but dismembered her like that's like a whole nother fucking level and so seven years is not a reasonable sentence at all but off that rant um those around joan believe that she would have been happy to have another child Martin did not believe that she was pregnant, but if she was, he didn't think it would, like, depress her in yeah, any sort of like way. Life, more, like, yeah, fairly well off. But then again, so... maybe if she did have those thoughts, like, oh, my God, like, kids, my life yeah, as a mother is hard. Oh, my God, what, I have another one. Like, she might have been dealing with yeah. So if a botched abortion was the case and something had gone wrong during the procedure, this could have been the reason for the blood. I feel like there would be a lot more blood, though. Yeah, exactly. You know, if it was, like, that serious I mean, but maybe really... they just like started to do something and she like freaked out i yeah, don't know possibly so the beer could have been used as an antiseptic and you know if something did go wrong the reason for the phone being ripped off the wall was so that joan couldn't try and call for help because if this doctor was caught doing an illegal procedure he yeah, would they get 
being some deep yeah. shit. Lose their license and go to jail. Yep. So the abortion theory could explain people seeing a woman matching Joan's description with blood running down her legs. Or, I hate to say it, but the coat hanger on top of the car. Oh, I hate that. I get that's like a classic, like, you associate those, but, I mean, not... You, I would think it would have, like, blood on it. Yeah, on so, but maybe it was also there. I saw on Reddit, maybe she, like, locked herself out of her car or something and was trying to unlock it with the coat yeah, hanger. Yeah, that seems a little bit more yeah. realistic to me than, than the botched abortion, which is just fucking terrible. Yeah, it's terrible, but I I feel like the evidence for that kind of makes more sense than anything, because... It's like a solid theory. Somebody was there, obviously, there were fingerprints, and there were, there was the car that was seen by two people. So I think there was a car and somebody there. Definitely somebody else there, yeah. Something happened. She was, I think she was attacked in some sort of way, tried to call for help, and maybe he took her. That's what I think happened. Um, or, say, this doctor didn't want to get in trouble, and yeah, it, it was that. Something, something happened. Um, her husband did dismiss this theory, saying that his wife loved their children and enjoyed being a mother. He also did not believe that she had planned her own disappearance either. Um, also, the fact that she would schedule an abortion in her own kitchen within a such short time frame with one child across the street that could come home at any minute, yeah. and the other upstairs about to wait from his nap, just seems unlikely. No evidence exists to prove Joan was pregnant, but it was also said that an at-home abortion just would seem out of character for her. So, maybe not a botched abortion, but maybe some sort of other accident is another theory. Um, this is one that like police went back and forth on. So, after re-examining the evidence... The police began to theorize that Joan had left her home on her own free will with somebody that she knew after suffering a hemorrhage of some sort. Um, There was no definitive evidence of an attack. There was no weapon. And besides the kitchen, the rest of the house was orderly. The blood scenes weren't in patterns that indicated they were from a gun or a knife. Joan could have fallen or maybe she injured herself outside. But... There wasn't much blood outside and no yard tools or equipment in the garage had blood on them. So it seems like some whatever happened, happened in the kitchen. Um, any of these ex- uh, occurrences doesn't explain the unidentified fingerprints on the telephone receiver or the fact that police dogs weren't able to track Joan's scent. Um, the state police lab suggested that the blood evidence was consistent with a hemorrhage. Maybe Joan had fainted and slipped and tried to grab the phone to catch her fall. In doing so, she ripped it from the wall. Um, but blood loss and shock could have caused her to suffer amnesia. And some people suggest that, you know, she just suffered some sort of head injury and wandered away in a state of confusion. Um, the route that she was reportedly seen on walking that day um, when she went missing on 128 was the site of active construction. And maybe she could have fallen into a pit along the highway a lot of people said this, like on Reddit, um, an excavation of the construction site was never ordered and police thought that Joan could have been violently attacked or kidnapped. So either she was, she had some sort of medical emergency, she was kidnapped, something happened to her, or she walked away in a state of confusion, um, was walking along this highway, active construction site, fell in a ditch, was basically buried. So those are the theories. Those are basically all the theories. Do you have anything you want to speculate on? She, 
she left that house from that car that day. And that would make sense with the bloodhounds, too. Because they wouldn't... Like, like she left they in the car? Scent, yeah. She wouldn't... They wouldn't catch a scent of her in a vehicle, whether she was in the trunk or driving it or anything. Um, the theory of her having, like, an accident and someone being there, that kind of really sticks out to me. And I wonder if possibly this person was intending to harm her but got her into their vehicle under the, like, oh, let's, let's get you some help. And But she wasn't ever reported being treated at any local hospital. Exactly. So what if they just said that to get her into the car? Like, something could have happened at the house where she might have injured herself or they, like, I don't, I don't know, maybe they injured her or maybe she just kind of, like, got hurt and they tried to, you know, she tried to, call for help it didn't work out so they were like oh like let's just go take you to get help i definitely think that she tried to call for help and that person did rip the phone because hit their fingerprints on the phone that was in the trash something got went wrong with some whoever owned that car yeah um they looked into leads about the car but nothing Nothing oh fuck no so um i think like it traced back to like a stolen car eventually i like the the, again the book that i read was very extremely detailed with a lot of details that didn't actually have to do with this case and then towards the end i was just kind of like skimming throughout kind of after i got through the theories but they did try to trace the car but it didn't didn't come back with anything really no no and um just the fact that there was somebody there that day just has that has something I to do with it? Somebody did something to her, and then took her, put her in that car. Gee, so you don't think those sightings were of her? I don't know. I don't know. Because they're also, it could be like, I mean, the last two with the the pretty much exact descriptions. That's really kind of. They also said like there were mental hospitals nearby, and this could have been like a, a patient that could have escaped from a mental institution. Um, that was like another thing that was brought up in the book. So, yeah, easily could not have been her. I mean, a gray coat, pretty common. It's pretty common. Um, so anyway, like the month following Jones' disappearance in early November of 1961, the Rich Home received a handful of phone calls from an unknown female. Um, Jones' father-in-law, Martin's father, had like helped out at the house, like raising the kids, so he was there a lot. Um, he answered some of these phone calls, and the caller refused to speak with him each time. Then, one of the neighbors received a phone call from a, quote, terribly excited woman. Um, and Joan was described to be, like, an excited woman before. Like, very reserved, but, like, you know. Um, but this woman complained that she had been trying to call her home, but didn't know the man who kept answering the phone. That's weird. Yeah. So that's all I have on that. Um... So, William and Barbara Barker went to the police in late January of 1962, claiming that their five-year-old son, Douglas, the same little boy who was playing with Lily and Rish that day, um, told them about a man sitting with Joan in her living room about two hours before she disappeared. This man was apparently wearing glasses and a business suit and left in what may have been a car with a pink and blue color. I'm thinking maybe blue and some rust. Um, this little boy didn't say anything about this until almost three months later. 
Um, but Lillian said that she never saw anyone else at the home that day besides the man from the dry cleaners. Police resume searches for Joan come spring of 1962, following all tips and checked any female bodies that were discovered um, to see if they were Joan. Despite all this, they still couldn't determine if Joan was a victim of a violent kidnapping, a medical procedure gone wrong, or just some sort of freak accident. No useful information was ever discovered after the initial investigation, um, rewards went unclaimed, and bodies that were being discovered in the surrounding areas were ruled out as being Joan. Back on October 24, 1961, Joan Risch was described as a Caucasian female, approximately 5 foot 7 inches tall, weighing about 120 pounds. She had dark hair, dark brown hair, and blue eyes, and she was last seen wearing a gray cloth coat, a sweater, a blouse, a charcoal-colored wool skirt, in blue sneakers. She also was wearing her wedding band, which was a slim platinum band with five diamond chips and possibly a scarf on her head. Um, her shoes have been variously described as blue high heels, flats, or sneakers with white piping. There has never been an age progression photo released of her for I don't know what reason, um, but if she is alive today, she would be about 91, 92 years old. Um, so if anyone has any information about the disappearance of Joan Risch, you are encouraged to contact the Lincoln Police Department at 781-259-8111. What a weird-ass case. Yeah, it's such, weird. Such it's so weird. So I'll post pictures of Joan. Oh my god, she's gorgeous. Gorgeous. Um, I'll post pictures of the kitchen scene, um, all the blood smear on the floor. And whatever other pictures I have of the case. I have a picture of Joan's car. Um, right, I have a picture cool. of her with her kids. So that is the mysterious disappearance. Excellent research. This is amazing. Joan. Yeah, I kind of like went hard into this case for like weeks. Um, I, I became like obsessed with it myself. I'm like, where did this woman go? Maybe we'll get an answer one day. I mean, look at what happened with Lady of the Dunes. Yeah. So you never know. Yeah. It's never too late. So they're doing a lot of crazy shit with DNA now. So and, and DNA. There was a lot of physical evidence with this yeah, case. Yeah, a lot for the time. So with the technology we have now, like yeah. maybe it could get solved. I um, I don't. I think something sinister happened to her. I don't think she left on her own. Yeah, I don't think that will. she's out there like living a double life. Maybe it wasn't. A botched abortion. People I, love that. People it, love that on Reddit. People it. are all over that. I feel like it that's just, like it's kind of like a lot of people do that with the Black Dahlia case too. And it's just that sensationalized, like of the time. In the in the, in the blood cover or the red paint in the kitchen was the big thing with this case. Yeah. So, some sort of medical emergency or attack happened. I think it was some sort of attack. Something something went wrong. Um, and this car was reportedly seen five days earlier, too. And Martin never recalls any person driving such a car. That's so maybe weird. she was doing something weird behind her husband back. And I don't know. Maybe this guy was just a creep and took an opportunity. Yeah. So, yeah. I know there was a lot of, like, door-to-door salesmen at that time, too. Mm-hmm. So, like, 
you never know if it was just there was a, a big thing weirdo. like the author and the book went on about like you know maybe someone could have stalked her from the woods for a time time or they had a perfect view of the house from the neighbor's garage maybe someone's in the garage that didn't resonate with like my gut so yeah. i just like didn't add that in there because i just don't think anyone just like fun theory but like why joan not. like why joan like why it could have been any neighbor so so yeah um that's it that's it for this one that is such a weird case yeah we'll see you guys on the next one stay spooky stay scary and, and stay, stay safe. safe bye